Welcome back to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today, we're going to do something a little bit more on the informal side. We are reading Deleuze's Nietzsche and Philosophy in our monthly reading group, the, the reading group that occurs at the end of the month. And hopefully I get this out by the time we have our second session of the Nietzsche and Philosophy reading group, which happens tomorrow, Saturday, September 30th. And then we have an additional session. It's basically the same session on October 1st. What I want to do today and what I have been doing is I'm creating essentially a document that's going to traverse all of the chapters of Nietzsche and philosophy. And I just want to do 10 to 20 to 30 minute videos and audio recordings that I'll then compile at the end that have all of, you know, sort of intro material to Deleuze's Nietzsche as it's presented in Nietzsche and philosophy. And the first one I did just kind of a monologue video. And I said, well, in the interest of difference and repetition, let's do something <laughs> completely different and bring back our friend Devin Gore, Nietzsche scholar. And we had him on Ask a Left Nietzsche. And I'm not going to assume that everybody knows who Devin is. Uh, I'm imagining some people are checking in with us for the first time. So Devin, welcome back. And could you just explain a bit, little bit about who you are and your interests philosophically? Sure, of course. Thanks so much for having me back on, Craig. I'm really happy to be here and to talk about Deleuze, one of the best all-time books on, on Nietzsche, without mm. a doubt. So I, I, I go by Left Nietzschean on Twitter, where, where some of you may have seen my lengthy threads breaking down Nietzsche texts. In terms of my background, I have a PhD in political theory. I, you know, during my graduate program, I primarily worked on critical theory, thinking about kind of moral and normative foundations of critical thought and social critique, social and political critique. And a number of experiences I had throughout grad school led me away from academia and towards kind of working on a book on Nietzsche through this sort of alternative ecosystem of, of podcasts and blogs and all that, which I think is pretty vibrant at the moment. So I'm really happy to continue that dialogue and go back to some of the themes we talked about from the last time I was on here talking about left Nietzscheanism. Cool. And, and the reason we brought you back is that you are a brilliant light and a defender of all things, not maybe not all things Nietzschean, but certainly presenting a clear and well-argued view of Nietzsche. And today we're going to talk about active and reactive forces. This is chapter two in Nietzsche and philosophy. And I always have the beginner in mind. I have this sort of romantic vision that there's somebody right now reading the genealogy of morals chapter two mm -hmm. somewhere in the world. They're a freshman or a sophomore in college, and they're struggling perhaps with the concept of bad conscience or resentment. And so I think a good way to, to kick things off here, it, you know, these are core concepts, you know, in, in the sort of oeuvre of, of Nietzschean concepts, and they certainly come into focus in this particular chapter. And I, I don't know, maybe to, to my own satisfaction, I think those concepts themselves are underexplained. In, mm -hmm. in chapter two. So I thought it was good to just go back to Nietzsche and sort of get a picture of reactive power. What is bad conscience? Sure. What is resentment? What do these terms mean? How are they similar? How do they differ? And what do these terms imply with regard to what Nietzsche thinks is important ethically? Yeah. Well, I think one thing that'll strike a, a beginner, somebody who's mostly been exposed to Nietzsche's published works coming, coming at this chapter, which, which actually I do take to be arguably the most important in the book because the active-reactive distinction really governs so much of the rest of what Deleuze is doing. I think we'll find a great deal of it kind of odd because while the genealogy really is the core, the, the real, real focal point of Deleuze's interpretation, this chapter draws pretty heavily on some unpublished fragments where Nietzsche is trying to work out more explicitly 
a theory, a kind of ontological theory of will to power. And it can be useful, I think, to kind of draw that back, connect that back to the genealogy, which for most people, I think will be the more familiar text and try to see how we can bridge the unpublished fragments with some of Nietzsche's more familiar published work. So in the genealogy, which is really, I mean, arguably Nietzsche's most systematic work, it's a book made up of three essays that go through these three kind of core concepts of reaction. You have presentiment, bad conscience, and then the aesthetic ideal. And we can see these as all different versions of a kind of underlying structure. And I think the core of that structure is this idea of the reversal of the evaluating gaze that Deleuze will really capitalize on and emphasize throughout his interpretation. So the first version of that we get is probably the easiest to kind of parse and, and the most intuitive. It's it's what we get in the contrast between what Nietzsche called master and slave morality in the first essay of the genealogy, which focuses on, on resentment. And the contrast here is between two different modes of, of moral evaluation or two different ways in which values can be created. So we start with a picture of this sort of noble self who is in some sense pre-conscious and pre-historical, somebody who is simple, lacking in the kind of the intellectual baggage that might obstruct the kind of pure flow of action and power. And this noble individual acts in the world, gives, gives, you know, produces some kind of effect in the world, and then feels this experience of, of power increasing, of power being exerted, and then affirms the value of that. Right. And this is the kind of no origin of noble morality that kind of starts the process for Nietzsche. Morality and values are, are affirmed on the basis of action first and foremost. So then what happens is there's a secondary contrast where the noble will then say that which doesn't act in this way is seen as or that which is powerless, that which can't act in the world is seen as bad, is seen as lacking and inferior in some respect. Right. This is the basic contrast of noble and base that Nietzsche is setting up. And it's important to recognize that this is not some endorsement in any straightforward way of this kind of structure. It's sort of elaborating what he takes to be an earlier mode of moral evaluation. The second mode that really defines resentment or the one where resentment gives rise to values and generates values is the reverse of this. Uh, instead of acting in the world, the resentful person is acted upon or harmed in some fashion, right? Or, or it experiences some kind of offense, some kind of slight. And that cuts into and limits their power of acting. They're forced to obey. They're forced to submit in some fashion. As a result of that, that person then develops the resentment against the you know, conquering power, designates that as evil, primarily designates that as evil, and then secondarily sees itself as good as a result of being contrasted with and negating the powerful and acting individual, right? And this is where we get the kind of bird, the famous birds of prey analogy in the genealogy where we the eagles or the birds of prey are presented as just kind of unconsciously giving vent to their instincts and preying upon the lamb. And it is then the lamb who decides that the eagle has some kind of subjectivity that entails a free will or choice where that the bird of prey can choose whether or not to exert power. The choice to exert power is then seen as evil, whereas goodness would be seen as, you know, not not exerting power, limiting one's power, you know, humility, meekness, these kind of Christian virtues that Nietzsche tends to derive, right? And so this is the basic contrast is what comes first is affirmation first in generating values or is negation first. Mm. And this is the basic contrast, but that gives rise to a, a kind of key move that I think bridges resentment and bad conscience, which becomes the core topic of the second essay. And this is that, as I already mentioned, what slave morality entails through negation is the creation of some kind of stable subject or doer behind the doing. 
And the idea is the subject has some capacity of free will to decide whether or not to act in accordance with its nature. And this is the move that Nietzsche sees, I think, is the kind of real step towards the decline into nihilism. It's when the doer is separated from the doing. Action, action is separated from what can do in some fashion. And when that happens, it is forced back upon itself in some fashion. Instead of being able to exert itself outwardly, it has to exert itself inwardly. And it's important for Nietzsche that force and power of this kind, they'll exert themselves no matter what. It'll be externally or internally. And that's when we start to get the development towards bad conscience in the second essay. And you'll see in the second essay, sort of at the beginning, that there are positive or more more productive ways in which the, these techniques can be employed. And these are all the horrifying descriptions we get of the torture that goes into <laughs> creating the, the good conscience that defines humanity, right? This kind of prehistorical labor. It's a later step that then takes this conscience as really definitive of the human being and characterizing some kind of stable, fixed subject that should feel guilty and accumulate some kind of debt as a result of its acting in the world and exerting power in the world. And that's where we get this trap where the aesthetic ideal comes in and kind of exacerbates the pain and suffering of somebody who already has their power dammed up and is forced to exert it back upon himself in self-torture. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of cycle of reaction that we get in the genealogy. And I think they're all basically different figures of this reversal of the evaluating gaze that Deleuze finds, finds to be so important. That's very good. And it's not, well, it's not simply what we might understand as particular resentments or specific resentments, for example, or a specific kind of guilt. But this sense of resentment plums pretty deep in the human experience to the extent that um, just our understanding of ourselves as a subject, our high regard for conscience, for example, are all outgrowths of this reactive power. Is that correct? I think that's exactly right. And I think there can be some confusion in this regard. In the first essay, you get some more, some clear historical analogs that Nietzsche talks about to kind of examples of noble morality. Mm-hmm. But it's really at the beginning of the second essay that I think you get the sense that so much of the reactive labor that he is describing that constitutes humanity is something prehistorical, such that it's very difficult to imagine throwing off, or it's not impossible to imagine throwing off this interpretive scheme that we've inherited because it's so deeply embedded in our consciousness. And this is a theme that's really core at the core of Deleuze's book as well, one that he really emphasizes, that to the extent that we are conscious at all, we are governed by reactive forces, right? Yeah. That as conscious beings, and really that means all of us, you know, all, all human beings, if not you know, an even broader spectrum of life, rather than distinguishing between stronger or weaker human beings, all yeah. human beings uh, are really limited to this question of how do we act our reactions? Action itself, in the kind of pure and mediated sense, is not possible for us. As conscious, we're aware of reactions, and it's up to us to kind of transfigure those into new conditions of action. So I think that's exactly right. And I think that that gets at this kind of tension between that often comes up in Nietzsche where, you know, how deeply is reaction, resentment, nihilism, how deeply are they embedded in humanity? Um, and can we really detach them from the human condition in general and assign them to specific cultural kind of entities throughout human history or historical movements? Or is it really a broader philosophical account? Yeah, I think one of the ironies that I experienced encountering Nietzsche for the first time was upon hearing about this distinction between active and reactive forces and understanding that reactivity governed so much of who I was, I developed a little bit of a complex and felt guilty about like, well, am I acting actively or reactively? And and not seeing that perhaps that 
was itself a function of reactive power. Uh, with that said, the idea of active force that we see in this more primordial being, is this something that Nietzsche wants us to go back to? I mean, we hear this phrase, beyond good and evil. It seems that Nietzsche wants us to take us to a place, maybe that's not been the center of these, but beyond this distinction. How does all that factor in, just to put like a, a final gloss on this, this preface to our discussion? Well, I think this is where the point that Deleuze makes towards the end of the chapter about the way in which reactive forces are what make human beings interesting, that actually creates something strange and novel in the world. Mm -hmm. And you'll see in the second essay that Nietzsche says that it's only with bad conscience that the human animal really becomes an interesting creature, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what what you see is a, a shift, you know, from some of the views that Nietzsche held earlier on, where he, in something like The Birth of Tragedy, where Socrates and the ideal of pursuing knowledge is seen as kind of unconditionally bad and detracting from this earlier tragic culture. By this point, Nietzsche has sort of accepted the inevitability of modernism. He's accepted the inevitability of natural science. He recognizes that there's really no way back to just returning to an earlier aristocratic culture. We have to accept that the human animal is bogged down by consciousness, bogged down with the will to knowledge. And we have to figure out how to transform those reactive elements into the conditions of a new type of type of human, right? This is the kind of figure of the Ubermensch, right? Some, not somebody who would be the naive, not somebody who's straightforwardly the kind of naive actor of the warrior who just is acts in an unmediated way, but somebody who has passed through the great weight of the eternal return and can actually affirm that knowledge and then still return to a kind of childhood. That's really, I think, what Nietzsche pictures is the only way forward. And I think that's why it's important that Deleuze calls attention to this way in which, you know, reactive forces also, have, this is the distinction between quantity and, and quality, right? Reactive yeah. forces also can become, can affir be affirmative and engage in a becoming active mm -hmm. to the extent that they begin to transfigure themselves into conditions for new modes of acting out, outwardly in the world rather than inwardly in forms of self-torture and separation from what one can do. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's something that's, that's often overlooked. And I think that's a, a complex, that gets to the complexities of these forms of evaluation, the nuances that Deleuze is talking about, that these are multi-layered elements of interpreting the differential parts that go into a, a relationship of forces. Great. Maybe one more thing before we get on to Deleuze. And I mean, certainly this does involve Deleuze. Deleuze is drawing heavily on the naklas, or the will to power, the collection of writings, journals, and drafts that were compiled by Nietzsche's sister, you know, right. of course, very controversially. And it was something that early on in my own, you know, sort of engagement with Nietzsche that I had been averse to because of the controversy surrounding it. But it seems that the French communists and Deleuze in particular tap quite heavily into this. Mm -hmm. What what does that volume of works, you know, what do those writings that weren't included in the major works of Nietzsche, what do they involve that makes it so appealing for someone like Deleuze? I know you talked about it, you know, Nietzsche's providing a sort of sketch, a quasi-metaphysical sketch right. of forces. Maybe you could say something about that. Sure. Yeah, so I think the reason that Deleuze is drawn so heavily from the Nachlas here, and he's getting this through kind of the, the will to power with all of its issues that you mentioned because of the, the editorial influence of Elizabeth Forster Nietzsche. The reason he's really drawing from the Nachlas so heavily is that he's trying to tease out a series of arguments that Nietzsche makes about the will to power and the eternal return 
that really only appear in his unpublished fragments. So what many people will find, I think, when they read the published work is that Nietzsche will sometimes proclaim that he has discovered, you know, the first two have discovered the will to power. He'll talk about it as, fundamental, as his fundamental concept. And then he'll sort of dance around giving any kind of clear definition exactly of what that consists in. And he'll also uh, equivocate at times, is it a psychological principle, a kind of desire for power? Is it a principle of all organic life as of biology as such? Or is it even a principle of all existence, including inorganic existence? And it's that direction that, that Deleuze is really trying to tease out. Will to power and this account of force, not as just a question of empirical psychology, not even as a question of just organic existence, but as a, a fundamental statement about the nature of existence as becoming and as defined by becoming. And that's why I think it is important for uh, Deleuze to draw on the fragments. And the, there really is there are really very few places in Nietzsche's published work where we see him try to really tease out the arguments that he's making in the fragments for why we should see will to power as this general ontological principle. There are a couple places that I think Deleuze are important for Deleuze's argument here. They're both in Beyond Good and Evil. One is section is paragraph 19, where he will talk about the will is fundamentally an affect of command. Mm. And the other is paragraph 36, which I think comes the closest in his published work of articulating a, a picture of physical causality, of actual natural causality based on the will to power. But I think it's helpful to have a little bit of background about what, what Nietzsche is up to, because I think that a lot of these will appear strange to someone who's never dug into the Nachlass. And for the, in that respect, it's, it's important to understand that some of what Nietzsche was reading kind of at the time that he's drafting these notes, many of which, of course, don't make it in anything that he publishes. So I think one influence on Nietzsche's thought that often goes underrated is Roger Joseph Boscovich. We know Nietzsche encountered his theory of natural philosophy around 1873, which is also where you get this early fragment that's known as the time atom argument that kind of represents an early effort to flesh out a cosmological theory of the will that bears certain resemblances to what he'll, he'll later say about will to power and eternal occurrence. Now, what's distinctive about, about Boscovich is that he has an idea that atoms don't have extension and we should instead see them as points of force. And Nietzsche is very taken with this idea because he's opposed to what he often calls the atomistic need. This idea that being has to consist in stable, self-subsistent things or objects rather than being essentially dynamic, defined by time and becoming. So what Boscovich gives him by presenting atoms as essentially defined by relationships of force is a way of working becoming into the kind of very fabric of existence. Now, Nietzsche's knowledge of physics was incredibly limited. He's also notoriously bad at math. So all of this is incredibly speculative, and he's drawing from a fairly limited number of sources. But I think it's relevant to note that he's writing at a time where the science behind this remains is very unsettled, right? So physics at the end of the 19th century is about to undergo a major revolution in which the classic framework of Newtonian mechanics will get upended and will start to be replaced by the kind of modern theories of general relativity and quantum mechanics. It's not until 1900, the day, year that Nietzsche dies, that Max Planck publishes his famous equation that we start to get to the early ideas of the wave-particle duality and establish white, light as a wave rather than a particle. And what Nietzsche is responding to is a kind of earlier mechanistic view that pictures causality as basically little lumps of matter colliding with each other, right? Billiard balls on a, on mm -hmm. a pool table. He's employing this argument that physics can't eliminate the sort of mysterious action at a distance, like gravitational effects transmitting through empty space rather than through observable collisions. And this is what's leading him to formulate this idea that there aren't really objects or things as anything other than effects of relationships of forces. 
In other words, primary our forces acting, forces acting upon one another. And what we see as bodies or objects are really the result of these kind of temporary stabilizations or equilibria in relationships of force, which are also caught within time and go through their own cycles of, of rise and fall, you know, ascent and decline. And, you know, I think the, these come up not just in the discussions of world power, but they also touch on the arguments that, that Nietzsche is going to offer in some fragments for a kind of cosmological defense of the eternal return. So the idea of the eternal return, not just as an ethical weight or a test for our life, but really as an, an actual description of how the universe works. Of, of time is infinite and, and the com number of combinations of matter is finite. And therefore, an eternal repetition of any given state of matter. And Deleuze will emphasize this as Nietzsche's view of the infinity of past time. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we might find this to be like deeply implausible based on contemporary physics, perhaps. But it's important to understand that Nietzsche really is trying to grapple with these concepts at that level, rather than just trying to offer a social theory or a psychological theory. And that's what Deleuze is really trying to, trying to hash out here in much more explicit form. And what we get in a rather condensed and somewhat difficult series of arguments in the first six or seven sessions of chapter two. Yeah, when I was introduced to Deleuze's Nietzsche for the first time, I was really taken by the way in which he almost contravenes this antipathy that Nietzsche has towards systematization, Yeah, right? And in that sense, and I mean, we can get into this a little bit more, but for, for the Nietzsche nerds out there, Deleuze is almost a Apollonian manifestation of the, the very Dionysian it, Nietzsche, yeah. <laughs> right? But nonetheless, but yeah. nonetheless, he, he, he enacts a kind of becoming. And in that, he, he creates a departure from the figure of Nietzsche, a stable version of Nietzsche, which is ironically a more stable version of his, uh, his metaphysics here. That's, that's one of the ways that I tend to see it. I think it's um, right, yeah. Before we move on, the Boscovich essay or book, what was the name of that? Yeah, it's a, a theory of natural philosophy. The, the title is in Latin, like the rest of his works. I That's would right. have to look up the exact year, though. But yeah, this was, we, we know that Nietzsche encountered, got his hands on a copy of this around like 1873 through 1874. And it's interesting because a lot of the texts that Deleuze is referencing are from 1885 onward, but it kind of makes it clear that Nietzsche was chewing over some of these issues from a very early stage. And that's one among a number of others. You know, there's he's he's interested in a number of books on the history of materialism, like F.A. Longo's book. And, you know, that this is something that I think is the scientific influence tends to be underemphasized in his thought. Yeah. If we locate those, maybe I'll pin those in the notes. And so, yeah, I should be able to give you some to look up the relevant info for you. Of course. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, there's going to be people who yeah. love that sort of thing. Yeah. Let's let's get on to Deleuze's notion of reactive force and active force, especially as it relates to the will to the power and the eternal return. One of the things that Deleuze does is midway through the chapter, he avails us by basically giving us a bulletin point list of what reactive force is and how reactive force is. And he does it the same for active force. And I just want to pin these descriptions so that we can come back to them if we don't cover them. One of the things that, that Deleuze says is that reactive force is a utilitarian force of adaptation and, and partial limitation, a force which separates active force from what it can do, a force separated from what it can do that also, in a way, turns against itself. Active force 
on the other hand, is plastic, dominant, and it's a subjugating force, a force that goes to the limit of what it can do. But that, that might be challenging because he does say that reactive forces can also attempt to go to the limit of what they can do. Right. And then the last thing here is a force which affirms its difference and makes its difference an object of enjoyment and affirmation. I'd like to get in that into that at the end if we could. So with that said, Active force and reactive force. This is the nuts and bolts of Deleuze's metaphysicaling of Nietzsche. So um, let's talk about what does Deleuze do with those concepts that's different from Nietzsche? What's the nature of the departure that he makes? I think what Deleuze does is, as you said, he's a more systematic thinker, despite the fact that in books like A Thousand Plateaus, we get this kind of wild proliferation of concepts. He's still trying to do something like a systematic metaphysics that resists a traditional identitarian concept-based tradition. And I think what he's doing here is, is trying to chart out more explicitly a series of arguments that Nietzsche makes in the course of these fragments that are fairly disorganized, scattered among a number of different fragments. And Deleuze is trying to lay them out in a clearer form and kind of trace the connections among them. And so I take it that what's what's going on here is that he's thinking about how we make sense of the possibility of something like a relationship of forces. So we have this idea that the fundamental constituents of reality are are perhaps these force centers rather than little lumps of matter or atoms, right? And Nietzsche takes takes care to often stress the idea that there's no way to separate the concept of force from what it can do, right? And in just the same way that we, we talked about the birds of prey and the kind of unproblematic just exertion of power, for him, it's it's kind of a tautology that force acts. That's that's the being of force, right? Force is only manifest when it acts upon something else, which means the very concept of force seems to imply relations, right? It seems to imply a relation, one force that acts upon another in, in the way that force only produces, you know, produces work and, and produces some kind of motion in the world when it acts upon something. And so the argument goes, how exactly does how exactly does that work? So let's say we imagine a force of a given quantity of power coming into interaction with another force of equal quantity of an equal quantity of power. Well, the idea is these would never enter a relation into a relation, right? They would simply negate each other in kind of the way that you know particle of matter and a particle of antimatter wink out of existence when they interact, right? Out of equality and equilibrium, we could never get the kind of actuality and dynamism that Nietzsche thinks characterizes the universe. So forces really can only enter into relationships in this picture to the extent that they are unequal, to the extent that there is an asymmetry, mm-hmm. right? One force has to act, has to be designated as the force that acts, whereas the other has to be designated as the force that reacts or does not act, or, or rather has its action channeled back or turned back upon itself, right? Mm-hmm. And that will be determined by the difference in quantity. And this is why Deleuze makes the argument there's no sense in thinking about quantity outside of difference in quantity. There's no way to imagine the, any given quantity of force outside of its relationship and difference from another force, right? Mm-hmm. And within that, one will be designated as acting, another as reacting. But this is where another wrinkle comes in, another problem arises. Well, so let's imagine an alternative example. We have a power, a superior force now coming into interaction with an inferior force. Well, it seems like another possibility then is that the stronger force simply destroys or overcomes the weaker, right? And moves on about its own business, right? And again, there's no no interaction or stable relationship here. Right. This is where we get the transition, I think, from quantity to quality. This is Mm -hmm. where we get the passage of the idea of the will to power as a complement to force. Will to power comes in as the quality that continues to individuate or differentiate particular forces within a relationship. It's through will to power that we actually have one force 
incorporate another as a condition of its own action, right? The active force incorporating the reactive force rather than one, rather than them both annihilating each other or one being eliminated through, through the result of the struggle. So when we kind of dig into this description of reality or description of a body as a relationship of forces, what we get is this idea that, that it's only possible through asymmetrical relationships where one force acts outwardly on the world, upon the world and defines the sense of a given cluster or given body. And it has incorporated a series of other forces whose actions now no longer exert themselves externally, but are somehow incorporated internally into the overall economy of that body and its action and its, mm-hmm. its affirmation of its power. And that, I think, is the kind of basic chain of argument that you get as to how you have a passage from quantity to quality in forces and why uh, there always has to be some kind of uh, asymmetrical distinction or hierarchy between active and reactive force that defines any any stable entity. Mm. And, and what's interesting, I think, about Deleuze's move here is that it, it presents a problem to thinking about Nietzsche strictly in terms of what happens to us as self-contained individuals. For example, now it opens everything up to the world of forces that stand outside of the individual. We're almost forced to consider things in terms of a multiplicity, and perhaps we can see the beginning of, of the concept of multiplicity. And I know that there's a translational challenge here that Taylor Adkins from Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour had pointed out, is that a word, the word that's translated from the French as multiplicity is problematic because Deleuze was not using that concept yet, but we're seeing intimations of that here. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit because I think one of the, you know, we've had battles on the internet with folks about, you know, applications of Nietzsche and the idea of Nietzsche sort of seeking out or valorizing this, this unique or exceptional individual, but, but clearly in the broader scope of things, active and reactive forces are something that that showed that the individual is porous. Absolutely. I think you're exactly right to see this as a kind of precursor to the concept of multiplicity that will then get elaborated more clearly in, in books like Difference and Repetition, because what you see is that any relationship of force must be a multiplicity to begin with, right? That we have to be able to uh, affirm multiple elements that sustain themselves in a relationship without ever being being reducible from one to the other. They have to retain their difference and their hierarchy within that relationship uh, without ever being fully assimilated one to the other. So I definitely think this is Deleuze working out the kind of fundaments of a concept of multiplicity that will become central in his own work when he stops just writing the monographs on individual thinkers. Mm -hmm. And I think there are two ways that these themes come out in this chapter that contest and kind of disrupt right-wing appropriations of Nietzsche that we often get pushback um, on the internet. And and one is the nuance and complexity of interpretation as it pertains to active and reactive forces that that, that Deleuze is describing in this chapter. Not only is it that there is always both quantity and quality, and that any given force, whether active or reactive, could be either affirmative or negative, or could be determined as having either an affirmative or negative will. It's also that any given affirmative or negative will has different nuances depending on the kind of assemblage of forces that make up its overall kind of its overall body. So it's important to understand, for example, that uh, active forces might become reactive, not not simply as a result of being overwhelmed by reactive forces that separate it from what it can do, but through a kind of natural process of decadence and decline through which 
a once ascendant force can begin to lose some of that force that allows it to dominate a particular body. So it's kind of interesting to think about how, for example, the idea of the, the great noon in Nietzsche, right, is, is mm-hmm. the moment that the sun is at its apex in the sky, right? The hour of the shortest shadow, but it's also from that point on that the sun begins to decline. Mm-hmm. So the moment of kind of peak affirmation, therefore, is connected to a cycle of decline. Mm-hmm. And situating uh, our kind of active interpretation within that cycle is important for understanding and, and actually differentiating what is active and reactive, what's affirmative and negative. And one of the things that's very important here that the second thing that Deleuze also emphasized, this is the connection that he makes between Nietzsche and Spinoza uh, through the idea of a a capacity for being affected. Uh, So what we talked about just before was how in order for there to be anything like a stable body, forces have to enter into some kind of relationship with one another that's sustained. Hmm. The weaker forces have to be incorporated into the stronger. Well, there's a sense that Deleuze is trying to bring out that it's only to the extent that a force has certain affinities with others, right, and is capable of being af- affected by them, that it can then ever encounter them as something, as resistance to its power, something mm-hmm. to act upon and overcome, right? And what this implies is the Spinozan idea that the more, the greater and greater our capacity for being affected becomes, the greater and greater the possibility of our our power becomes. And that, I think, is an important reversal from the idea of, you know, power is understood strictly as affecting, as acting in the world. Well, it turns out that being affected, suffering, right, being able to sustain and endure suffering, then becomes seen as a tra- as a condition for further action. And I think mm-hmm. that's sort of the model that we get when we start to think about how reactive forces can engage in a becoming active. You know, the example, for example, for the example of an artist who engages in aesthetic practices right. uh, out of a kind of super abundance of creative power, that's a form of suffering. It's a form of passivity, perhaps, you know, as something acts through you rather than you being a theory, experiencing yourself as an agent. Yet it, it is at the same time a condition for real creation and affirmation and power. It's kind mm-hmm. of a model of how reactive forces can become active. Yeah, and this is something, uh, I won't say I struggled too hard to think of an example, but there's a way in which we can employ asceticism. I mean, this is something that Nietzsche talks about in The Genealogy of Morals, too, that there's a positive application in the sense that, I mean, a very concrete example is think about the way in which, you know, mobile devices hold very strong sway over our lives. And our decision to cut those things out as if they were organs or a piece of our flesh you know, and here we are talking about a body without organs. And I would undergo three weeks to three months of digital detox in that period of bracketing myself out from like all of those, you know, those digital influences. I can then get in touch with a kind of embodiment maybe that's that's not, you know, so wedded to my constantly reacting to notifications or the impulse to pick up my phone and so forth, and therefore discover a new kind of self. So in in that sense, there's a way that we can mobilize reactive forces to our benefit. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I I think the the idea we get from Deleuze is to some extent, that's the bulk of what we do, right? To some extent, reactive forces are the bulk of what what we deal with because the active forces remain on a kind of unconscious level. Mm -hmm. And to that extent, these practices of asceticism, you know, I think of Foucault here as a great example of the later Foucault talking about asthesis, talking about techniques of the self. These can be modes of, you know, as what Foucault calls getting free of oneself and kind of detaching oneself from certain power relationships uh, or relationships of domination in which we are caught in cycles of reaction, right? And in that sense, I think that there is like a robust, robust ethics there that leverages reactive forces and, and kind of depends upon the acknowledgement of our vulnerability as human beings in that respect, as conscious entities, that we are 
uniquely vulnerable in some sense because of our how dominant the will to knowledge is within us as the kind of peculiar human animal we are, right? We have unique challenges in affirming because we are subject to such a great extent to reactive forces. So, so much of the question of interpretation in some sense is then what we do with this state of reaction, you know, whether we kind of re- remain in what I think in earlier texts like Schopenhauer as educator describes as a, a state of shame, just being ashamed of oneself, mm. or whether we, we view our shame as itself more shameful than anything we could be ashamed of and see that as a condition for becoming, you know, recreating our lives in some way, acting in the world anew. And I think this is a theme that persists throughout Nietzsche's philosophy. And that's why I think it's often a mistake, you know, any, when, when we have a conception of hierarchy that ever tries to cleanly designate, you know, in, in a stable way, a particular force is definitively active, a particular force is definitively reactive or inferior. The analysis that Deleuze is giving should, should show why we have to disrupt any kind of picture of Nietzsche that would, that would assign, you know, fixed, strong and weak essences in that way. It really runs counter to the picture of forces that he's describing here. Absolutely. And I've always thought that from an ethical standpoint, it was very empowering to see it Deleuze's way. You know, there's almost a kind of maybe resignation isn't the right word, but just to see how deeply embroiled we are within reactive forces and just his idea that active forces are largely unconscious Mm -hmm. means that we exist within this kind of strange alchemy all the time. And, and he heads off this sort of dialectical interpretation of active and reactive forces. It's not right. like, okay, we start with the active, no, and then reactive not. comes in, because now we're, we're basically being Hegelians through the Nietzschean metaphor. Right. Well, and I think there's a, the passage that Deleuze mentions in this chapter from Ece Homo, and it's, it's kind of right at the outset of Ece Homo, where Nietzsche says that his genuine experience in life, it's a, it's a passage I call attention to pretty often, that his genuine experience in life has been being able to, to view sickness from the perspective of health, while also viewing health from the perspective of sickness, right? Mm. Being able to, to view the heights from the depths, while also look down upon the depths from the perspective of the heights. And it's important for this picture then that there is no dialectical synthesis or re- resolution. We have to retain mm-hmm. the tension and distance or difference between these two perspectives, because in some sense, it's only across that distance that it creates a new perspective with which new values can be created. Mm-hmm. And in this sense, sickness presents an opportunity. And this is a great deal of Eche Homo is dedicated to Nietzsche narrating how that functions in his own life. Sickness creates an opportunity for understanding the value of healthy concepts the value of contesting the aesthetic ideal kind of intensification of suffering and pain at life that it, that it entails. So I think that's that idea both shows how Nietzsche is distinguishing himself from a dialectical conception, but also explains why reaction is not somehow a, a straightforwardly bad thing in any kind of s- simple way, right? Reaction can be an opportunity. Sickness can be an opportunity, provided that it subtends this sort of difference in distinction and perspectives that we can make use of. Yeah, and I think some of that discussion there, I mean, thinking that Deleuze is, is is standing behind your comments here, we can it kind of prefigures this idea of a minor politics or just minor movements in general, that the idea that we could make alliances with things be, you know, in in the sort of minor configuration or that which is excluded from, let's say, that you know, the, the, the sort of whole or total of rational society. And by doing and by by making a connection with that which has been excluded, that which is deemed heterological, then empowers us in certain ways. And I, I mean, you can already hear susurrations of a left Nietzscheanism kind of coming in. 
Well, because part of what's so important there is the denial of a will to sort of self-assertion, right? Because that's the kind of striving of, you know, consciousness in some fashion. I mean, it's sort of sounding a bit Buddhist here, but I think there's mm-hmm. some, kind of, some real affinities here in certain ways. You know, the, I think you can see the kernel of what will become the concept of deter- deterritorialization in capitalism and schizophrenia, right? The, there's an idea in which we have to break down the reactivity of conscious, consciousness to release these underlying unconscious affects. And that release then opens us in a kind of becoming minor towards affinities and commonalities, a kind of effective contamination with other forms of life, right? It's kind of premised upon deconstructing and dismantling a particular view of the fixed conscious subject that somehow distinguishes humanity, right? Mm-hmm. And I do think this is exactly Deleuze trying to sketch out some of the some of the concepts that will then later form the foundation of these this politics of becoming, whether it's becoming animal, becoming minor, becoming woman, all the different versions that we get of that in the Thousand mm-hmm. Plateaus. And you sort of see in, in a really clear sense why becoming becoming active must be a becoming minor, right? Why why it could never be a becoming major or becoming a kind of existing strong identity that we have a conscious thought or ideal of. It has to be kind of breaking down and deterritorializing that before we can open up a new perspective. Right. And there is some caution there because, I mean, I think by and large, when we think about becoming minor, I, I think there is def- definitely an affinity or a synergy with with left politics. But that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. There, there could be something perhaps even extra political if we want to think in those terms. What, one last thing on this before we, we move to a juicy topic, which is hierarchy. But one of the ways in which, or one of the examples that Deleuze pulls regarding active becoming reactive is the example of a priest, for example, creating a moral system and mm-hmm. in doing so subjugates themselves to the very system that they create. Right. I, I wonder, you know, metaphysically speaking, you know, from Deleuze's vantage point, or maybe there's a way we can shore up Deleuze's argument on our own. What is it that constitutes the shift from active to reactive or reactive to active? How does Deleuze sort of make that note in his system? Yeah. So I think it's, it's, we can kind of distinguish between ways in which Deleuze describes it and ways in which Nietzsche kind of illustrates it throughout his work because Deleuze's version is going to be a bit more technical. So what we, what we have is this idea of acting versus separating a force that acts versus a force that separates another from what it can do. Mm. And the question of becoming active versus becoming reactive seems to center around whether it's oriented towards a kind of intensification or amplification of forces or whether a series of for, of inferior for inferior forces conspire to separate a superior force from what it can do right mm. now as we've said we find ourselves most most always in the position of the so-called inferior force trying to figure out how we transform that into a condition of action right and it's at this point that i think the hierarchy flips that instead of commanding and dominating, obeying and, you know, enduring become in these kind of figures of aestheticism can become conditions for self overcoming. So for a good example is the way in which in Zarathustra's prologue, we talk, Zarathustra talks about man as something to be overcome and talks about man's downfall, right? Well, man is essentially reactive, like the last man, particularly in Zarathustra. Yet man's going under is in some sense a becoming active. It Mm -hmm. is in some sense that reactive force 
you know, allowing its, its nihilism to take its course until a new perspective is opened up. And this isn't dialectical synthesis, but it is nonetheless a way in which reactive forces can recognize their reaction and instead of striving for a kind of self-assertion, transform this into a condition for a new system of values. So in the case of the priest, you know, this is a question of interpretation. We have to dig into the question of how active and reactive forces play a role in a given system of values, how becoming active or affirmation and becoming reactive or negation are layered onto this kind of nuanced framework. So you can see how a system of values might be rooted essentially in life denial and rooted essentially in projecting ideals upon a upon a transcendent world, right? In which case we're necessarily separated from what we can do in this world. Alternatively, that asceticism could be diverted towards a form of value that does involve discipline, that does involve sacrifice of some kind, right? It does involve suffering, but nonetheless can create conditions for further action in this world rather than displacing that onto a transcendent one. Great. I don't want to take too much of your time. I want to thank you, Devin. Uh, I mean, this is amazing. And I just want to shout out the reading group because we've been doing the Deleuze Nietzschean philosophy reading group now for, this will be our second session, our second month. It'll probably take us until the end of the year, Christmas or New Year's or thereabouts. And we record all of the sessions. So there is time to jump in. If you're listening to this episode today, it's likely that the reading group is today. So you can hop in, talk to Devin, who will likely be there, and the rest of us on Asset Horizon. So please subscribe to Patreon if you're listening. The last question that I want to ask you before we go is about hierarchy. Mm -hmm. It seems fairly obvious to me, and, and in no uncertain terms, that Deleuze's Nietzscheanism purports a, a notion of hierarchy, but we have to be careful about what hierarchy means. Deleuze says that there's two senses in which hierarchy is used. And I mean, I have it all spelled out here. You're doing a wonderful job explaining this. What what are we to, like, what, what does Deleuze mean by these two different senses of hierarchy? And does Deleuze look at hierarchy in a way that is, I don't know, celebratory of the concept or accepting of it in some way? And what might be some of the political implications mm -hmm. for, and, and we're going to say left-wing politics, because this is perhaps one of the most challenging sticking points for those on the left who want to accept Nietzsche into their lives, which sure. is, yeah, the idea that like, oh, we're, we're just going to exist with hierarchy is, does this mean we're going to have leaders and people who are, you know, who are stronger and these people aren't going to be reined in and they're going to have free reign to exploit the weak and so on and so forth. What, how does Deleuze figure all of this? Yeah. So I think the, the move that really complicates matters and, and creates a number of the complexities that, that attend to this issue is the kind of ontologizing of hierarchy, right? That we see in this picture of active and reactive force. Uh, hierarchy is woven into the fabric of existence rather than being simply a feature of human social or political arrangements, right? And we know that Nietzsche will connect this, this extremely abstract philosophical account that we, we said really appears in the fragments to mm -hmm. quite explicitly to certain forms of social, social and political hierarchy and domination that he seeks to endorse, right? This seems mm -hmm. to be his preferred society. So the question, of course, becomes how do we disentangle one from the other? And, and I, the way I tend to approach this, and I, and I take this to be in kind of Deleuzean spirit, is to try to deflate the in our kind of immediate normative reaction to the, to the language of hierarchy. So to me, the, there are two, two ways in which hierarchy functions that do not necessarily connect to this objectionable or reactionary idea of political inequality that we see Nietzsche endorse sometimes. One is the idea that hierarchy represents 
an order of rank that is required to determine values of any kind, right? So I think, for example, in a socialist, if, we're, if we want to endorse a socialist society, right, say this is our, our vision for a utopian future, we, I think, would want to ask, well, what would the role of somebody who has the psychological makeup of a Jordan Peterson or a Matt Walsh, what role would they have in that society? Well, I take it that a socialist system of values would establish something comparable to an order of rank in which views that are resentful and intolerant and uh, militate against forms of equal dignity would be viewed as lower in a kind of moral order of rank. And it's difficult for me to imagine any kind of positive political vision doing away entirely with hierarchy in the sense of moral determination, right? Mm -hmm. and, and Nietzsche is then giving us means to think about this in a nuanced nuanced way that actually gets to the, the real origin or genesis of values and the real function. And I think the second is that the political implications of this kind of view of hierarchy, power asymmetries uh, as ubiquitous, I think are quite double-sided. So I think one version that Deleuze associates with the bad hierarchy, right, would be an idea such as the kind of view of medieval Christianity, where you have society organized around those who labor, those who pray, and those who fight, right? This is this kind of ternary structure is then embedded in an ontological hierarchy with the Christian God at the top that defines the cosmos. This is the idea of kind of tradition, traditional hierarchy that we know Nietzsche rejects and Deleuze is sort of associating with the wrong, wrong version of hierarchy. Let's take a different example. Take the example of cases where we talk about there being real power asymmetries in relationship, in cases of sexual assault or sexual harassment, for example. So we often see cases in which typically men with, you know, significant power will abuse their position as a result of power asymmetry in order to exert violence upon women or upon, upon others of, of any sort, right? And in these kinds of situations, denying the existence of a power asymmetry is the typical reactionary move, talking about, for example, free choice when it's obvious that consent was not involved and violence was involved, right? Imagining away the reality of a power asymmetry and not attending to the way those are interwoven in our lives suddenly becomes a way of, it, of endorsing forms of injustice and forms of domination. Whereas the flip side is that we have to be incredibly alert to those power asymmetries to understand the moments in which injustice does arise, right? So I think these are both examples of where the discussion of hierarchy is, is nowhere near as simple as the kind of aversion that we often get from right Nietzschean pictures. And, and I would argue that the right Nietzschean view will pretty much always reify or essentialize the concept of hierarchy. It will almost always settle upon some kind of stabilization of the dynamism of forces where a particular race, a particular class, a particular tradition is somehow seen as essentially strong and therefore entitled to rule over the weaker. To me, that is really the exact opposite of what a picture we should get out of Nietzsche, Nietzsche should be. And I think it's one that actually has a lot more potential for understanding the nuanced ways in which power relations are interwoven in our lives and the challenges that presents for, for thinking about equal justice. Well, Devin, I just want to thank you. I, I wanted to provide a very short summary of Active and Reactive Chapter 2 from Nietzsche and Philosophy, and I think you did a wonderful job. And once again, I invite those who are listening to join us in any of our Nietzsche and Philosophy reading groups, which occur on the last Saturday and Sunday of the month. Devin, it was wonderful to have you again. Thank you so much for having me.